Business as Unusual is a thought-provoking podcast that explores the innovative strategies, disruptive ideas, and unconventional practices driving successful leaders and companies in the ever-evolving world of modern business. Subscribe, comment, and share for weekly inspiration with our host, Aisela. Hi, I'm Aisla, and this is Business as Unusual, and I'm here today with Shona Lee. We're going to talk about developing ethical leadership in tech. Welcome to the show, Shona. Hi, how are you? I'm so good. I'm so excited to have you here. I was talking to right before we started, and this is reflecting every time we've talked. It's always been so delightful. So I'm happy to invite all of you into our little conversation today. Hopefully you will enjoy it as much as I know we will. I, yeah, I'm hoping you say because I've certainly had some wonderful conversations with you previously. So we, I think we're in the middle of one and said, we should record this. Absolutely, <laughs> Matt. So before we get into the details of what you do in your professional world, what is the, what is a hobby that you have or a hobby of yours that you think might surprise people? I was, so I'm pretty active. I like hiking a lot. But one of the things that's a little unusual is that I really like lifting heavy weights. And I don't look like a weightlifter. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy pushing my limit. And that's smaller than a lot of people's. But I like lifting weights that are heavy enough that the guys at the gym look a little sideways at me because I'm a middle-aged woman with graying hair and they don't expect me to go pick up the 100-pound bar, uh, barbell. So that pleases me. Oh. That is awesome. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected that. And I love that. I used to do weightlifting and it both helped me with my running when I was doing more running. And also there's something about the feeling of strength, like personal, grounded, like strength in that yeah. place that was very enlivening. Like the first time that I did a set where I did 12 deadlifts with 100 pounds and I came away and I was like, yes, I'm the goddess. It was uh-huh. <laughs> it's such a different and interesting experience. And that's something that I think we as women all just be really revealing. My mom, when I first started working out just at all, she was like, be careful that you don't get too many muscles or you might be unattractive. <laughs> that's not- Thanks, mom. That's not really a risk. For women, like you've got to really work at it to get muscular. It's very easy for us to develop. Oh, and like, I think it, I did the whole biceps and yeah. um, oh, fine. It's just think, that's why is me being attractive the thing you're worried about? Don't you understand? I'm being strong right now. Like, yeah, to be that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I like. I loved. I saw a meme a few months ago, and it said, "Forget about beach body. I'm trying to get an old lady body." And it's the being having the balance, having the strength, having the bone density, having the muscular base to go forward into aging in a way that we're going to be resilient and independent as long as we can be Mm -hmm. and physically capable. And yeah, that's for me, that's it. It's about maintaining like balance and strength are so important to being an agile human being. Yeah, I love that. So will you tell the folks who are listening a little bit about what your business is? I have been working on developing program, set of programs for ethical leadership in tech. And when I say that, people tend to assume that I'm going to Amazon or something, but I'm interested in technology in the broadest sense possible. 
for the most part, I've been working in software in the last few years, but I'm talking about also engineering, the built environment, and how we, as we build technology-based companies, how we integrate an ethical foundation in right from the get-go. Because if we make compromises in the development stage, those tend to compound themselves. And we have to be careful right from square one, developing a culture that holds responsibility for the actions that we're taking at the core. So that involves that kind of cultural conversation. I've done some appreciative inquiry with companies where they start off and I, the appreciative inquiry says, so what would this look like? What do we look like at our best? And what would we imagine to be the best future? And then how do we use ourselves at our best to get to that best place? So there's that cultural component. And then there's the leadership piece, which is the individuals within the organization need particular skills for clear communication, for not leading from positions of fear and anxiety, and being conscious of when a lot of times the ego gets entangled in the decision making. And so it becomes about collaborative team communication and working in ways that are aligned with an explicit and intentional set of values. So you have to have the values, have agreed upon the values, have communicated amongst yourselves about what they are, and then run along in ways that are consistent with them. And it's quite difficult to do those things. Like one of those things often gets broken. And I think the running along in a way that's consistent with the values is actually the hardest thing because our fears and anxieties play out in the workplace the same way they do in our intimate relationships. And they just, they become sites of conflict. I've seen that. That sounds like a really important undertaking. So thanks for doing that. What in, <laughs> what in your life or past at the stage for you to see this as a need or to get into this work? This power systems for an aluminum smelter. And I found myself going, am I on the right side of history here? I need to really like... How do I use my technical skills and my math and my engineering and work towards that better world that I really wanted to see? And I didn't wind up finishing an engineering degree. I studied, it switched into physics and I taught physics for a while, but I kept teaching engineers. And eventually I did an education degree and all my concerns and interests were about teaching engineers. And then I did graduate study about teaching engineers. And so I'm just like really at heart, although I'm not legally designated as one, I still think very much like an engineer. And I'm very sympathetic to that drive to change things. And so my education was constantly pushing me back into looking at engineering education. And I was at heart really, the word, compassionate, like compassionate towards this desire to change things and the striving that's built into the, into that engineering drive. 
but also as a human being, as somebody who loves to hike and go outside and really cares about food and really cares about other people and really cares about our impact on the world, I couldn't just go fully gung-ho into that chasing and striving for technological perfection, whatever that might be, because I could always see the impacts and consequences of the things that we were doing. That's a land. That's great. I agree. That's what we're here for is to talk about what you're up to. So fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So this is business as unusual. What you see is the most unusual or the, it's a, it's a broad question. But I think you have the sense of it. So whatever yeah. is most important to you to share. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So I could start off. I'm going to start off with just the te- recent ways that te- the tech industry, and now I am talking about Silicon Valley, has been thought of and perceived and how it's run along, mm-hmm. which is that venture capital-based, grow really fast, unicorn model where you get lots of funding and you move fast and you break things and you don't really concern yourself with whether you had the right to break the things that you broke and who already was using them. And so there's a mainstream concept of what constitutes success in tech these days. And it's that silicon-based venture capital back rapidly growing monolith that dominates the entire market. And my vision is that we, as technologists, as engineers, as scientists, as mathematicians, use all of that knowledge to build an ecosystem of businesses so that there's not a unicorn winner-takes-all kind of approach, but lots of small and sized technologies that work together in concert and um, that there's lots of space for there to be multiple things in a particular niche, that there doesn't have to be that one dominant player that wins everything and a whole bunch of also ran. So at that level, I, I think that the way we've been developing those huge tech businesses where even my friends that have built small businesses and have built sort of contenders in one particular space, their goal has been to be acquired. So mm-hmm. you build something that could be a competitor to some bit of one of the big five players, but you do it hoping that they'll notice you and they'll buy you and you'll get tens of millions of dollars for that. So it's not that long term vision where we can grow lots of these little businesses and they continue to exist. They continue to be successful and they have an income and an outflow that basically matches and they get to 50 people and then they stay at that. Those steady state businesses, they think there's an essential, there always has been an essential place for those steady state businesses. So I'm imagining a tech ecosystem that looks more like our local economies where we have hairdressers and mechanics. And so for the tech industry, there's spaces for those individuals, for those very small businesses, for medium-sized businesses. And they're not considered failures. They're not considered something on the way to something else, but they're a thing in and of themselves. 
So that's a first pass at that question. The second pass is going to get into a much bigger philosophical question, but I think I'll let you ask question first and then we can try bigger philosophical questions. We can fill in what we missed. That sounds great. Can you tell me about a time when you were successful in achieving your mission with a either a client or a colleague or yourself, like someplace where these concepts became something more concrete that, so that folks can understand that pathway? Yeah, I worked with a small company. I actually was one of their developers, but we did a retreat and I was asked to use my facilitation skills on the retreat. And we got to talk about what was our vision for this company. And we wanted to build it into a part of an ecosystem that there was a valid path to cooperative governance, to cooperative ownership. And so we were really, the founders had in, had always intended for that company to be governed differently. And so we were in the process of shifting to using sociocratic principles. And so we did that sort of visioning that didn't include the getting big and getting bought, but included like that this would be a long-term investment of our energies. And then we could become a model for other companies. So the vision wasn't to become the massive thing, but to become could become a model. And mm -hmm. so it's that sort of, how do we build something that can be replicated that they are still like, I, I left because I wanted to focus more on the facilitation and I wanted to work, focus more on this. And I was spending all my time writing software and but they're continuing in that vein and they're very successful with that approach. And there's no long-term goal of getting huge. They just have a sustainable revenue targets and models that that focus on that steady state where they get mm -hmm. to a size where they're comfortable with their governance. They have enough profit in the sense of value left in the company, but there's no need to extract it and pipe it to some exit mm -hmm. strategy. There's no exit strategy, except for there's no exit strategy. I get that's a thing that happens. And I understand that it's it's almost trying to win the lottery, right? Like I want to be, and I know a lot of people who work for smaller startups who a little bit why they're there killing themselves is the hope that they'll get bought by Google and they'll get a big payday. And I understand the feeling of security that might provide. Like I absolutely relate to that desire because we don't have a social safety net in the US. The, there's always that feeling of Un under underlying insecurity what what big catastrophe that i can't plan for or prevent is, is gonna mess me up so i don't have a judgment on that mentality because i really do understand there's a lot of reasons for people to seek that out especially as employees we're all working class even if we're working class at a hundred thousand dollars a year and yeah. <laughs> I, I sometimes people forget that reality and and at the same time it for me there's this feeling of that desire to be community connected. Like, how do I be part of the ecosystem in which I live? And that, I think, is a different mentality around business, which is then how do I create something that's part of what's happening here? And then also, how do I live a life where I'm not killing myself to do work, but I'm actually doing my life and my work? Like, they're both parts, they're both meaningful parts. It's not all drudgery and then escape. <laughs> 
which or my friend distinguishes between work and toil. Like, how can we work more and toil less? Yeah, yeah. And and another thing that occurs to me is that I don't know exactly what it is you said in there, but something sparked for me. There's two two things I want to say, one of which is. This is an aspirational vision for me. Mm. This isn't, I don't think we're there. I think we're very much in scale fast, get big or get out kind of Mm -hmm. world right now. There are certainly all, there have been and will continue to be small service provider. There's a lot of software development companies that are essentially boutique. They're doing, Mm -hmm. they're doing a lot of the maintenance. They're doing a lot of the contract work for projects, for larger organizations, for large corporations, for government. But the sort of mid-scale product business, I can think of one that I, no, I can think of two that have gotten to a size and then just stayed steady state. So it can be done, but it's a much rarer goal even. So just to bring this into the conversation is the first step. I say, yes, this can be done. Here's evidence that it can be done. The other thing is that an enormous amount of the technology that the enormous number of the people working in tech ultimately are working on infrastructure. They're keeping the government websites running. They're keeping data pipelines open. They're keeping trains on time. They're keeping really boring bits on the back end of insurance companies secure and safe and stable. Mm. Or they're wiring together a whole bunch of things that already existed when two insurance companies merged with one another. There's a lot of boring infrastructure in technology. And those, there's a group called the maintainers. Those are the, they're the not the sexy bits, but they're a really vital component of all of our infrastructure. And because of this sort of drive for growth and novelty, we really neglect a lot of our infrastructure. We underfund the maintenance. And those things are often being done by people who aren't being paid very well. And so there's an incentive to abandon all of that. So it's, I'm envisioning. A world in which all those things that are essential are also valued, which means that a lot of us who recognize that they are important have to learn to speak on their behalf and value them and speak up for them and talk about our boring work as at parties and say, no, I got to do this really cool mumble boring infrastructure stuff, but be so enthusiastic about it. And I know that you can make people go, wow, I never thought about that. And the maintenance, the infrastructure, the essential pieces of our lives become invisible in the background and they're only ever visible when they break. The magic of keeping the electrical grid running with varying levels and high intensification on hot days when all the air conditioning comes on at the same time and when everyone turns on their stove in the same moment when they arrive home from work at 5 42 p.m like those spike moments the fact that we can keep all this stuff running all the time is amazing Mm -hmm. and i think one of the things 
that happens is that we come to take our technology for granted, not recognizing that we live in this like incredibly magical place where all these things, where we've got the luxuries of, of royalty, way beyond the luxuries of royalty in past generations. And we just only notice when they fail, when our phone doesn't work. Did you ever read the article? It was both an article and then a book, The World Without Us. Probably did. I read a lot in that. It came out, I want to say, easily a decade ago. It was the first time I really understood what you're talking about. I read first the article and and it was in some publication thing yeah. and then he turned it into a book but a the, book. yeah but the one that i remember because i had no idea that literally they are pumping water out from underneath new york every day and if somebody didn't do that for two weeks the city would crumble and we and when i say we i mean me at that time <laughs> but i really didn't comprehend how actively we have to maintain the things that feel quite permanent to me they feel yeah. like they're just, like you said, take for granted. I just, I was like, oh, obviously this, they would not build a bunch of large skyscrapers <laughs> on something that subject to falling apart. But, and so that was a really big aha moment for me that there's, there's so much that I don't understand. Like not even just mm-hmm. taking it for granted, but ignorance of, of what's part of keeping what what's happening alive. And I think that maintenance piece, I love that you talked about that. Because I feel like in a lot of ways, understanding and valuing the ways in which we can be cogs in the machine, it, it, there's ways I know people resist that. And I also see it as a really powerful way to commit to community mm-hmm. to say that I'm here for all of us. Maybe it's not sexy that I'm going out <laughs> and pumping water out from underneath New York. And it's pretty sexy that it's not crumbling. That's pretty sexy. That's pretty sexy. It's really nice when you get where you wanted to go on time and nothing went wrong. Yeah. There's an enormous number of people and technological systems and not just computers, but keeping the rails from cracking, understanding the material science that keeps the, keeps the, I worked in the nuclear industry for quite a while. So I know a fair amount about how nuclear can go wrong. My very first my first summer job was working on the shutdown system for, I wasn't working on the system itself. I was doing the flow chart. I was just editing the flow chart for the shutdown system for a nuclear reactor. Wow. That right at that moment, I was 16. I got there on a summer internship and I looked at how like you can shut a nuclear reactor down in seconds, but the process you use to shut it down in seconds makes it not able to turn back on for several months. So you have to be really certain before you pull the trigger on the second long shutdown system. And so that idea of there being systems that they're, they're maintained in this relatively safe, contained state yeah. actually, I think, probably shaped my ideas of everything. And then I, when I studied physics, I was really interested in, in complexity and I was in, interested in, in phase transition, which is when things shift from one state to a different state. And one of the ways I describe the sort of, so let's get back to the philosophical piece now. 
the further a system is away from its equilibrium state, which is what it would be doing if we didn't do anything to it, the harder it is to keep it at that clip. So in a nuclear system, you've put a whole lot of uranium that should never be that close to one another together. And then you're running water over it so that you heat up the water. It's a very expensive and complicated way to boil water that you then run through an, a turbine. But if you don't constantly maintain that and monitor it and protect it and keep it from going off the rails, it can go off the rails really catastrophically, really quick. Mm-hmm. And there was an article in New Scientist probably about 10 years ago as well, maybe 15, that talked about how the global supply chains and our basically our entire economic system is in that same state of being very vulnerable. And we saw that with the pandemic, that all of those systems that we think of as separate systems are actually entirely entangled with one another. And so we now have inflation that's playing out, that's got something to do with the supply chains from three years ago that are still like playing out in the system. And so from that philosophical, where we're doing business, we're working inside this constantly evolving system that's really evolving in unpredictable ways. Mm-hmm. And we've got to be able to be agile and keep our feet underneath us by being aware of what's happening in the outside world. And there's a tendency in businesses to react and respond in, in very narrow terms. And that makes perfect sense because we have limited information. But somebody somewhere needs to be putting together those bigger pictures as well. And so I keep zooming out to those higher levels of abstraction and going, okay, what's happening on the bigger picture? And how do we, as we're developing all these data system, let's look at tech now, the Silicon Valley kind of tech developing all these data systems, a lot of the things that we're doing with those are pushing on those systems in unpredictable ways. So we're adding those stressors that are comparable to those sudden supply chain shops, where all of a sudden we're going to change how decisions get made. The AI systems, all of a sudden, do they change everything? If so, how quickly? What does that do to jobs, to access to the labor market, to incomes to housing to food and when we're building a new technology that makes a whole lot of new things possible we need to be conscious of the fact that the shocks we introduce in one part of the system are going to have impacts that percolate through the whole thing and so for when i'm going back and talking to a tech person a leader in a tech company or a vc kind of person who's deciding whether to fund something do they understand that the decision that they're making, like looking at an interview with Sam Altman, do you understand that the decision that you're making is making decisions for all of us that are going to take decades to ripple through? Did you ask before you did that? Yeah. Did you ask or did you just do it? And that's, I mean, fundamentally, we've got that. I want technology to be developed and expanded consensually in relationship with the society and the systems that it impacts. Yeah. No, that makes sense. 
So I guess I just gave you about 50 different things you could ask questions about. And all your listeners, their heads just went, what? No, wait, what? Are we talking about nuclear power? Are we talking about supply chain? Yeah, it's great. It's perfect. I appreciate the depth of information and the analogy, honestly, because it's helpful to, I find a lot of times it's easier to understand things when you take them a little out of context. And so you can get more of a sense of it when you take a step back. So thank you for that. Can you or will you tell me about advice that you received that is influenced the way you approach your work? That's going to that's going to take me a minute. I guess I've always been I've always been looking like I read a lot of self-help. I read a lot of business development. I read a lot of coaches. I'm going to actually I'm going to Having just been talking about science and technology in the nuclear industry, I'm going to do something very weird because I'm going to say Martha Beck, who is sort of the life coach's life coach, really talks about her last couple of books were Finding Your Way in a Wild New World and The Way of Integrity. And so I've never met her. I've never taken a course with her, but I've read like all of her books. And I've read them more than one. And that kind of finding a place in the world that is really resonant. Pecker Palmer also, Let Your Life Speak, which is that not trying to be somebody other than who you are, that I wasn't going to be Cheryl Sandberg. I wasn't going to be a CEO, I wasn't going to be one of the captains of industry because I was deeply driven to ask these questions about meaning and purpose and deep reality. Yeah, And it's the same as, uh, I've heard this from a bunch of different places, but it was Rabbi, Rabbi Zuzia is the one that I can think of, which he said, when I die, God's not going to ask me, why weren't you Moses? He's going to ask, why weren't you Rabbi Zuzia? And so that comes up for me over and over again, which is to stay centered and go, what's really the story that's trying to be told through me? And if that turns into a business, it turns into a business. If it turns into a book, it turns into a book. (laughs) But letting things be told through me where I'm like, the shaper but i'm the shaper the way like a potter is where clay has a has an internal integrity to it you can't make it into everything you can be something but it can't be anything so that's a more mystical answer than maybe people would expect from someone who just did the nuclear power analogy to the global supply chain but fundamentally it is that holding on to that connection to the core and going what is it I really value what is it that I really want to say about the world and letting it come into conversation with what other people are doing that they really value and really want to say about the world yeah I like that thank you so much so this is not a small undertaking and it's definitely swimming upstream in in certain ways so Can you talk about how you keep yourself inspired or recharged? Because I can imagine that you might run into some ways that you might need that. 
I do a lot of meditation and I do some silent meditation. I spent, I did a lot of both yoga and Buddhist meditation for several years, which is very much like that single point of focus or following the breath and in silence. And I do still go to sitting meditation with a group. I do, however, also use guided meditations that kind of go, that, that keep reminding me over and over again of the things that I just said, because it's very easy to lose track of those yeah. things and get into striving and aspiration and why haven't I made it yet? And why did I take on something so big? Why can't I just be happy with whatever it was that would have been easier? So there's a lot of that. And the other thing is making sure that I surround myself with people who are also a community of people who have a vision for better things. And so that was the local food movement for a while when I was living in rurally. I hung out with a lot of farmers and I had a stall at the farmer's market. I live in a city now, so I go to a co-working space that is other people who are focused on making a better world. They're, it's called the Center for Social. Oh, no. The Center for Social Innovation. Like, I go there every day. <laughs> it's called the Center for Social Innovation. So there's people who are working on all kinds of projects, but the goal is always that they have some vision of a better future that's more just and more nurtured and more cared for. So connecting with other people. So connecting with the self, connecting with other people, and getting some exercise and eating well. This house supposed to improve. Yeah, that, that it cannot be understated. For me, it's remembering sleep is a critical aspect of head voice. I have a what adversarial relationship with sleep, but it it's a struggle. So I feel you take care of that part too. Who would you say thrives with your service? I find that people who are already committed, who are I would say the people that light up are the ones who are working already in something. And I had somebody lean in and say, I got a PhD in this thing. And now I'm doing this thing for an ad company. And it's really boring. And that please find me a way out. So there's an individual piece where I've done some coaching with people to go, how do you make sense of this? How do you redeploy your energies towards something else? Does that involve doing volunteer work or does that involve changing jobs when we all, of course, need to continue paying bills? So the one piece is that. And then the other would be small companies that already know that they're value focused, but they're probably under-resourced and they need some help to figure out like how do we not live in this scarcity mode and solve? There's a lot of fundamental problems that you have to solve around a business model and revenue and balancing your working hours with getting things done that can get swept under the rugs when people are at the beginning of a company. And so having these conversations where they've got a touchstone to keep going back to early on, I think is probably the best time. Like, not in the first six weeks, but 
you don't want to be 10 or 12 years in and go, oh, we need a complete reshake once you've already bought 75 employees. <laughs> that makes sense. You want everyone to have body in early because it's much, much harder to change an established culture than to intentionally build one from the ground up. Yeah. What does success look like to you? I, so I've got my personal success and I've got my vision success. My vision success is that I would love to see a world in which there were viable jobs to go to that were part of the regenerative economy where people could use their technical skills, could build towards a better place because the better place is in the process of coming into existence or has grown into existence. That all of our genuine problems we're facing are properly resourced and that they're all valid, viable things to do with your life. Because at the moment, I see an awful lot of people choosing between doing what they think is the right thing and keeping the roof over their heads. So that's my vision. And my contribution to that, I would like all of my income and to come from this, to come from, from consulting and building these better, more viable businesses. Because I think that they're part of the seeds of an, an emerging change. So I want to be the, I want to be a part. I want to do a part of that. And I want to bring this complex three-pronged thing where we go look at how does how does tech work in complex systems what's our vision for the future world and then what's our day-to-day alignment with those things so that just becomes a common framework for thinking about the problem mm-hmm. that sounds awesome i want you to be successful on every level <laughs> and so for folks who are listening who might contribute to you being successful by hiring you or referring you to someone, how do they follow you, find out more, connect to what you're up to? What's their best way to reach out? The best way to reach out is on LinkedIn through messaging. I will get back to people with LinkedIn messaging. There is also a book me link on my website, which goes directly to my Calendly. And tell me what you want to talk about. And I will yeah, the notification that you have booked an appointment with me. Thank you so much for sharing what you're up to today and talking to me and the folks out there who are listening. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I, I hope the whole foray into nuclear energy wasn't too too sideways, but. That's aw- No, I love it. I, when you said systems, like I watched Chernobyl and I grew up near Three Mile Island. So I was. Okay. I, I don't know. I think it's great. And it's actually yeah. an important topic. Yeah. And it, it really is, it's, a, it's an example of a system that we have that's very complex and far from equilibrium, but so is everything else in our world. I think so. it's an important point that I hadn't really thought about, but it's very basic at the farther out of alignment to a certain extent. That doesn't mean it's all out of alignment, but the more effort it is to make something occur, the easier it is for it to degrade. Yeah. And it's a very, that's a very simple formula. And it's also something to understand because we are a path of least resistance by nature. But the technology blends into the background. It's just reality, mm-hmm. it's not something you have to think about it until it doesn't work. 